continuing in Acts 17 this morning, uh, beginning at verse 16, going through verse uh, 34, the end of the 17th chapter. As I started to work on this sermon, I realized that it uh, really I had more to say than just one sermon would allow. So this is part one of uh, two parts of Paul's time in Athens. Uh, I'm going to be giving a little bit of background this morning uh, about the, the context of a- Athens to help, uh, help us better understand what's going on there. Uh, we'll really get into Paul's time with the Areopagus next Sunday. Uh, as we prepare to read God's holy and errant infallible word, let us turn to the Lord now in prayer. Our Lord and our God, now as we hear your word, fill us with your spirit, soften our hearts that we may delight in your presence, sharpen our minds that we may discern your truth, shape our wills that we may desire your ways. We pray this through Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen. Acts 17, beginning in verse 16, hear the word of the Lord, it is written. Now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. And some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus saying, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting for you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know therefore what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious, for as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship is as unknown, this I proclaim to you, the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being. As even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent 
because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this, he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now, when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. But others said, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst. But some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysus the Areopagite and a woman named Damaris and others with them. Now to him who loves us, who has freed us from our sins by his blood, to Jesus Christ be all glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. After having been now run out of Philippi, Thessalonica, and Berea, the apostle Paul found himself in Athens where he was awaiting the arrival of Timothy and Silas who had remained in Berea. Paul had called for them by way of those who had escorted him from Berea to Athens and had asked them to join him as soon as possible. And it was likely that Paul was hoping to return to Macedonia. If we remember, Paul had had a vision in Acts 16.10 in which Paul had been called to Macedonia to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. For the time being, though, Paul was all alone in Athens. Now, as many of you may know, Athens was a very interesting city. It was a place of intellectual and cultural significance in the ancient world. We know this because it would later become widely known as the birthplace of Western civilization and the cradle of democracy. It was famous for its artists, playwrights, historians, and philosophers. During its golden age, Hippocrates, the father of medicine from whom we get the Hippocratic Oath, called Athens home, as well as Socrates, who is considered the founder of Western philosophy. This also means that Athens was home to those who followed Socrates, so Plato's Academy and Aristotle's Lyceum were both there in Athens. Needless to say, a very high premium was placed on knowledge in Athens. It was a place where ideas were introduced, discussed, and debated. But even as Athens was a city which was aesthetically magnificent and culturally sophisticated, it was also, as John Stott said, morally decadent and spiritually deceived. It wasn't just the center for arts and learning. It was also filled with pagan temples. The Parthenon, the great temple to Athena, the Greek goddess of wisdom, was there in Athens, prominently displayed, as were temples for the goddess Roma, the emperor Augustus, and many other Uh, pagan deities. You could hardly turn around in Athens without running into a pagan temple or statue of some god. In fact, a member of the court of the infamous emperor Nero once jokingly said that it was easier to find a god in Athens than a man. 
and joking he might have been, but the truth was that the population of Athens was around 10,000, while there were about 30,000 statues of gods. And as Paul wandered around this city, even as he perhaps marveled at the magnificent architecture or was impressed by the vast intellectual knowledge, something else caught his attention. We read in verse 16 that Paul's spirit was provoked within him when he saw that the city was full of idols. Now, this English translation of this verse might be a rather tame way to articulate what the Greek says. The point is clear, though. What Paul focused on was not the city's beauty or brilliance, but its idolatry. The picture that Luke paints for us is that Paul found the city to be swamped or submerged with idols, and this left Paul provoked, provoked to anger, grief, indignation. Paul was distressed by the gross idolatry that he found in the city. Now, we might feel that anger is never a a proper Christian response. But this anger that Paul experienced wasn't a sinful anger. After all, Paul himself must have communicated to Luke without any shame later that this was what he was feeling as he walked around the city in order for Luke to record it here in Acts 17. It wasn't because Paul had a bad temper Rather, it was due, as John Stott commented, to Paul's abhorrence of idolatry, which aroused within him deep stirrings of jealousy for the name of God. As he saw human beings so depraved as to be giving to idols the honor and glory which were due to the one living and true God alone. Paul was provoked, just as God was provoked when the Israelites made the golden calf in the wilderness. Unfortunately, this was not the only time the one true God was provoked by the idolatry of the Israelites, right? There were many more instances in which Israel worshipped the gods of the surrounding nations. The Lord speaks through the prophet Isaiah saying, I spread out my hands all the day to a rebellious people who walk in a way that is not good, following their own devices, a people who provoke me to my face continually, sacrificing in gardens and making offerings on bricks. God was provoked when those whom he created to worship and adore him gave the glory and honor and praise that was due to him alone to others. Scripture makes clear that God alone deserves our worship. He has a right to our exclusive allegiance. So Paul's reaction here reflects God's response to idolatry found in Scripture. But what Paul reveals to us here 
is that we who belong to the Lord, we who love the Lord, should share in God's disgust when his name is profaned. When the worship he is due is offered to another, when anyone or anything else steals the glory and honor that belong to him alone. We should be able to declare with the prophet Elijah that we are very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts. Have you ever experienced this, a jealousy for the Lord? I know that I have several times, but perhaps most vividly when I stood among the Hindu and Buddhist temples in Kathmandu, Nepal. From a human perspective, these temples are magnificent. If you were to think that Christians have a monopoly on exquisite places of worship, then you would be sadly mistaken. The, the Hindu temples in Kathmandu, for instance, are filled with some of the finest artwork that humans have produced perhaps ever. Every inch of the temples from floor to ceiling are adorned with carefully and skillfully done wood carvings. The sheer quantity of detail and how evident it is that painstaking attention was paid to it is just absolutely remarkable. It must have taken countless hours to produce the carvings in these temples. They weren't done in days or weeks. They were built in years and even decades. It really is amazing, breathtaking, really. But it's also absolutely gut-wrenching. There are disgusting images of false gods everywhere you look, demanding that you give them honor and worship. And in many cases, they are imaged doing despicable things. If you give it any thought, it will make your skin crawl. And watching multitudes of people come and go from these temples, devoting themselves to these false gods, bringing them sacrifices day and night is sad and disturbing. The spiritual darkness around these temples is palpable. So I ask you, are we able to be around such a thing and remain entirely unaffected by it? Remain neutral to it? Can you simply be an objective observer in such a scenario? This is what our culture has ingrained into us, conditioned us to feel and believe that we should appreciate the beauty of it, but we mustn't pass any sort of judgment on it. All ideas are equally valid after all, right? That's what our culture says. It would be horribly arrogant for us to claim that there was anything wrong with how another person chooses to practice his or her religion. If there is one thing that Paul's experience in Athens shows us, though, it's that any person who professes Christ as Lord should be provoked by such a thing. We should have a deep desire to see God receive the glory he is due, and it should cause us grief when he is dishonored. Now, that doesn't mean that we should walk around 
hot with anger all the time, being triggered by every little thing. That's not what this means. Don't misunderstand me as saying that. We need to notice what Paul did here in Athens. He didn't start lighting the temples on fire. He didn't start knocking over the statues of the gods, nor did he curse and swear at the Athenians. His response to this indignation was not some sort of uncontrolled and outwardly violent behavior. There is a Christian way to handle holy anger. Paul was enraged at the idolatry he was witnessing, but he acted with restraint and respect in his outward behavior among the idolaters. So what did he do? His indignation led him to go and to proclaim Christ in the synagogue, as was his custom. But he also went to the marketplace to engage those who were there, which by the way, is a play right out of Socrates' playbook. He too was known to have gone there to the marketplace in Athens to engage people in conversation about these ideas he had when the marketplace was most crowded. And it is a good place to strike up a conversation. You see, the the marketplace was not just the main economic center of the city. It was also the political and cultural heart of the city. In this very pagan environment then, it was a great place to meet people for the purpose of sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ with them. And the goal was that in coming to know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, that this would turn them from their idols to the living God. And that they would worship and serve him alone, giving him the glory that he is due. Paul made this his sole mission in Athens. So we're told in verse 17 that he went to the marketplace day in and day out. And what we perhaps discover in the Apostle Paul here is that we have many motivations for evangelism. Our reasons for proclaiming Christ in the world are not limited to obedience to the Great Commission. Of course, that is important. But nor is our motivation simply because of a love for people who are alienated from God and lost in their sin. That too is important. But we should also desire to proclaim Christ out of a jealousy for the name and glory of our Lord. As John Stott noted, God has promoted him to the supreme place of honor in order that every knee and tongue should acknowledge his lordship. And whenever he is denied his rightful place in people's lives, therefore we should feel inwardly wounded and jealous for his name. Have you experienced that? This is what Paul was experiencing in Athens. And it's not only okay for us to experience a religious and righteous indignation to the idolatry we find in the world. It is right to have this experience. You don't have to only fear for another's eternal salvation to witness to them. You should also feel the burden of seeing God honored and glorified among the nations. After all, God's glory should be our chief concern. So we too should 
allow the idolatry around us to provoke us to evangelism for the sake of leading people to turn away from their idols and turning to the one true and living God. And note here that Paul has a concern for the full spectrum of people there in Athens. He was speaking with the religious people, the God-fearing people in the synagogue. He almost certainly was having discussions in the marketplace with street-variety pagans, as R. Kent Hughes calls them. But there were also the intellectual philosopher types. Luke identifies for us the two main groups which represented the competing philosophies of the day, the Epicureans and the Stoics. Now, without getting into too much detail about these groups, the Epicureans valued pleasure as man's chief end. They disbelieved in the gods of ancient myths. That isn't to say that they, were, that they didn't believe in a god. They weren't atheists, but their approach to God was more deistic, meaning that they believed that God was completely uninvolved in the universe and therefore irrelevant. So practically, they lived as atheists. They believed that everything happened by chance and that death is the end, that there is no afterlife. You see that coming up later when they scoff at Paul proclaiming the resurrection. But we know folks like this, right? If we don't know them personally, then we've certainly encountered this sort of worldview all around us in people who are pure materialists who seek pleasure because after all, life, this life is all that there is. So they avoid difficult things, uncomfortable things. They pursue pleasure. They do whatever makes them happy. The other philosophical school was Stoicism. Stoicism was the most popular form of Greek philosophy in Paul's day. That's not to say that many people were actually Stoics, but that many Stoic ideas were widely disseminated. The same might be said today of postmodernism. Anyhow, the Stoics were pantheists, meaning they believed God that everything is God. God is in everything. And in contrast to Epicureans, the Stoics saw the world as determined by fate. It wasn't determined by chance, as the Epicureans believed it was determined by fate. And advocated, they advocated that human beings must pursue their duty, resigning themselves to live in harmony with nature and reason, however painful this might be that they might also develop their own self-sufficiency. As a result, they sought to live with apathy and detachment. They had a fatalistic resignation since whatever happened to them was their destiny. We know folks like this too, don't we? These are the types that don't have any sense of divine presence or guidance in their lives. They just grin and bear it. Whatever comes their way, they try to push through and endure and make the best out of whatever life throws at them. So these two popular non-Christian beliefs are in our own culture. And I realize that there's a danger in oversimplifying these philosophies. We shouldn't be mistaken, though. Many of the proponents of these schools of philosophy were highly intelligent. These philosophies themselves were highly intellectual. 
And some of the folks that we know today who represent these two groups aren't unintelligent. They are plenty smart. But here's the deal. Paul's issue was with the idolatry in Athens. That's what provoked him. And we should make the connection between the idolatry and these philosophies. There's a reason why Luke presents to us these two groups, and here it is. Those who held these philosophies had a deficient view of God. And as a result, they were left with a deficient view of mankind and how to live. This is an inevitable result of a deficient view of God. You can't hold a wrong view of God and somehow come out with a right philosophy for living. And these philosophies aren't, I don't think, what we would view as positive philosophies. Rather, they are, as James Montgomery Boyce described them, degenerate, negative, and despairing. This is where we end up when we get God wrong. But again, make the connection. When we get God wrong, our worship will pretty quickly be misplaced because if we aren't worshiping the one true God, then we will be worshiping something or someone else. And this is what Paul found in Athens. Of course, he ran into some wrong-headed philosophies. He was interacting with those who had wrong-headed views of God and consequently were worshiping the wrong things. Paul was able, though, to not be overly enamored by all the achievements of Athens. He was able to see past all of those things which caught the world's attention to see that there was a very serious spiritual issue going on there with idolatry at its core. The philosophies then were simply an outworking of their idolatries. I hope we can sadly see that our context here in America is not drastically different than what Paul faced in Athens. Why is it that there has been a breakdown in values and morals that we hold as a society today? Why is it that we are facing today so much divisiveness in our country? Why is it that there's so much political dishonesty and corrupt business dealings? Why is it that people have become increasingly more self-centered and relativistic? And we can point to a changing political landscape. We can point to globalization. We can point to technology run amok. We can recognize the prevailing philosophies of our day and identify how all of these things are rooted in errant thought patterns. The bigger problem is a spiritual one, though we end up with the negative and despairing philosophies like postmodernism and critical theory because there is overall a deficient view of God in our society. We have as a society moved away from having a Judeo-Christian view of God and this has opened the door for other things to replace God in our lives. And what was once taboo has become widely accepted as we have thrown open the doors of our hearts to worship other things. Sex, freedom, self, wealth, power, entertainment. The gods of our culture. 
And we've created temples where sacrifices and worship are offered to these idols. We are right now in the midst of a heated national debate about one of these idols, and we will perhaps see in the days ahead violence if this idol gets toppled over. It is all a symptom of idolatry, though. And one has to wonder what the Apostle Paul would feel and do if he were wandering around in any big city in the United States of America today. If he got dropped into Los Angeles or New York City, what would he be feeling and doing? And the reality is we aren't far removed from what Paul faced in Athens, although perhaps for us it's harder to see because we aren't visiting this place as a tourist. It isn't as glaringly obvious for us as it might be if we were in a place like Kathmandu, but it is right here where we live. We just haven't noticed these things because they have grown up all around us slowly at first, but more rapidly in the past few years. But what we are seeing now are merely symptoms of problems that have long existed, idolatries in the human heart. Regardless, now we are faced with some questions. Are we, as Paul was in Athens, able to recognize the achievements of our society without being too enamored by them? Can we wander around this place and look at the pretty buildings and enjoy the amazing artwork and appreciate what has been wrought by intellectual pursuits, but then can we still be able to analyze it rightly and respond as Christians who are able to see clearly the limits of our secular culture? Are we able to see that we have gotten to where we are as a result of idolatry? And are we aware of where we might have fallen victims to it in our own lives? And will we, brothers and sisters in Christ, be provoked to act for God's glory? We're going to get more fully into the specifics of how Paul gives a defense of the gospel next Sunday. His speech to the Areopagus on Mars Hill is one of the most brilliant that he delivers in all of Acts and it is to a pagan culture, so it's going to have some direct connections to us. But I hope that we can see this morning that Paul was not afraid to stand in the marketplace and give witness to Jesus Christ. He was willing to stand toe-to-toe with some of the brightest minds of his day, and we're going to see that, especially next Sunday. He was willing to be criticized and called names. He was willing to do this because he had a jealousy for the name of God. He was eager to do this, to see God receive the glory he was due. Are we willing to engage with the culture around us as Paul did in Athens? Do we recognize what Christ has done for us on the cross? Atoning for our sins? raising victorious from the grave, ascending to heaven for us? Can we stand by and look at the idolatry and be unmoved by it? Would we stand by if one of our loved ones was being dishonored?
Will we allow our indignation over the idolatry around us to provoke us to evangelize for the sake of the gospel? Now, we need to understand that God doesn't need us to defend him. He is plenty capable of this himself, but we should love the things that God loves and hate the things that God hates, and that which offends him should offend us. And we should have a strong desire to see God glorified in all things, not just in our lives, but in the lives of those around us. We should desire to see God honored in the society around us, and we should be working to shape the culture in this way. Next Sunday, we're going to see how Paul went about this work. But let's conclude there for this morning. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we give you all thanks and praise. You are great and greatly to be praised, Lord, and you are worthy of all of our affection. And Lord, we give you thanks for the work you have done for us to deliver us from the dominion of darkness and to bring us into your marvelous light. Lord, we thank you for the salvific death of Jesus Christ on the cross for his resurrection from the grave. Lord, for the gift of your Holy Spirit that gives to us new life. And Lord, as you fill us with your spirit, we pray that we would be given a jealousy for your name and glory. Lord, that we would desire to see in all people, in all nations, in every tribe, and among every tongue, your glory being proclaimed. Worship being given to you, the one true living God. Lord, give us a passion to see this happen. Give us wisdom to work here in our own city and even to the ends of the earth. Lord, to see your name be praised, to see you have the renown that you are due. We pray this in the mighty name of Jesus Christ, for his sake. Amen. In response to the gospel of Jesus Christ, let us now stand and affirm what we believe using the Apostles' Creed. Christian, in whom do you believe? I believe in God the Father.